0: Well good morning, everyone is so quiet, good morning and welcome to Wheaton Bible Church especially those of you that are visiting with us, we are glad that you are here today. My name is Rob Boo, I'm the senior pastor here and following the service I'll be standing down right over there and if you're visiting I would love to meet you, get a chance to know you and and welcome you personally here to our church. We are in a series called Explore God, where we've been looking at common questions people have about Christianity. And today we come to the end. Today we conclude this series by looking at the question how can I know God personally? Is that even possible? What is involved? What is entailed? How do I? Uh, make my way on that on-ramp. And we're going to have a lot of fun as we look at this question and as we wrestle with it. But there's a couple things I want you to know about this question. First of all, it's a question of beginnings. This isn't the question, how can I deepen my relationship with God? It's the question, how can I begin my relationship with God? It's a question we ask all the time uh, when we meet people or want to get to know other people. Now, Steve is 18 years old, and Steve just saw her. And Steve said she is the most beautiful 18-year-old woman in the frozen tundra of all of Chicago. And so Steve, uh, as he's looked at her, as he's thought and thought and thought about her, he's convinced that she's the month of July, she's the Rose of Sharon, and all of these things. Now, Steve didn't actually say any of that. But Steve's question is, how can I get to know her personally? It's a question of how can I move beyond Facebook? Facebook. And it's a question we ask all the time, and it's a question of beginning. The second thing I want you to know that I find very interesting about this question is it's also a relational question. It's a question of relationship. This isn't a question of how can I get more facts on the existence of God or the deity of Christ. This is a question, how can I know Jesus Christ? How can I have an ongoing experience with the author of creation? Really, this is a question of love, if you think about it. How can I experience God's love? What would it look like for me to love God? How can I experience God's goodness, God's power, God's compassion? We just sang about how mighty our God is. How can I experience that in my life? How can I existentially know that in my heart? So this is a question of beginning. It's also a question of relationship. Because Christianity is all about relationships and the heart. So to address this question, what I want to do this morning is I want to go to the Gospel of John. There are four Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We want to go to the fourth Gospel, and John chapter 3. And what we want to do is jump in on a question or a conversation that was begun by a question that's taking place between Jesus and a seeker. And Jesus is having this conversation with his man. His name is Nicodemus. And he is um, asking uh, Nicodemus some questions as Nicodemus has asking him questions. Nicodemus happens to be a Jewish religious leader, but Jesus, uh, Nicodemus doesn't know God personally. And so Nicodemus is trying to figure out who Jesus is and how that relates. So would you stand with me as I read from John chapter 3 and verse 14. Jesus is speaking, we're coming to the end of this conversation now, and Jesus says, just as Moses in the Old Testament lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man, now Jesus refers to himself over and over in the Gospels as the Son of Man. So the Son of Man, so Jesus himself must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Now if you're reading in a Bible, you'll notice that the words we just read are in red, and now the following words are in black. That's because we move from Jesus' words to John, the author of the Gospel of John's words. Equally divine, equally important. And John is summarizing what Jesus has just said. And so in verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son now i lo- you may be seated now i love this passage uh, for a couple of reasons And one is, it answers this question, let me go ahead and move on, in four parts, how can I know God personally? Well, the verses we just read give us this answer again in four parts, God is love, God is just, Jesus died for sins, and you must believe. So it tells us who God is, what Christ has done, and how we must respond. Uh, the who, the what, and the how. And what I want to do is I want to move through each of these four parts and along the way tease out this answer and look at what the Bible has to say. Look at what Christianity has to say about arguably the most important question in the world. How can I know God personally? And the wonder of Christianity is it tells us yes, yes, It promises us you can know God personally, and that's what we're going to look at here. So let's start with God's love. Let's start with this first part. And let's go back to John 3.16. And what I want to do to answer this question is I want to take some time and do something that you may have never experienced done before, but go through most of the words in the first half of this sentence to get at how vast and how comprehensive God's love is. So the first word, or the second word, is God. Now that's significant because that describes the origin of love. God is the origin of love. And because we read God, it takes us all the way back to the very beginning of the book of Genesis, the first four words in the Bible. In the beginning, God. Now, that is Christianity's statement right out of the blocks, right at the beginning of the Bible, that we live in a personal, not an impersonal world, because at the center of the universe is God. And therefore, the universe is not a random collection of molecules. You and I are not a random collection of molecules. We are people that have been created in the image of God because God is at the center of the universe. The universe is personal, not impersonal. In the beginning, God means that you and I were not designed to live self-absorbed, self-centered, independent lives. We were created by the living God the living personal God, to live in dependence upon God, to live in the presence of the love of God, for God is the origin of love. Now hang with me, we're going to go now to a big word, the word so. Now so here describes the magnitude of God's love. I so love you. I so can't wait for the Bears to win the Super Bowl next year. I'm so excited, our kids say. So expresses magnitude. It expresses the vastness, the bottomless of God's love. God didn't merely love, God so loved. Because God is infinite. Because God is good, because God is wise, because God is omnipotent or all-powerful. God's love is omnipotent, wise, good, infinite. God is so loving. Paul expresses this in Ephesians chapter 3 when he prays. And this is one of the prayers I pray for you here at Wheaton Bible Church. That we might grasp, and the word grasp means we might wrestle with, we might get a hold of, we might understand. And Paul goes on describing Christ's love, and he says, how wide, long, high, and deep is the love of Christ. How comprehensive. It covers everyone, everything we've ever done. How long, how eternal. There's never been a moment in the universe when God hasn't been loving. How high, how heavenly, how majestic, how beautiful, and and how deep, how sacrificial is the love of Christ. And Paul is praying that you as a believer in Jesus Christ, that we as followers of Jesus Christ might know the vastness of God's love. For God so loved the world. Now let's go to the verb, and I want you to notice it's in the past tense, not in the present. John doesn't say, for God so loves. He said, for God so loved. And what he's telling us here, and this is something that's sometimes hard for us to get our minds around, is that God loved us just the way we were. God loves you just the way you are. That God loved us in our brokenness. In our God loves you in your shame and your guilt and, and your sin. God, God's love to you is unwavering. It, it, it's eternal. Bottomless. So in the famous parable of the prodigal son, the prodigal takes off. And what this is telling us is even though all of us have torched God, we fled from God, we've been independent from God, we want to do our own thing, and we squander our our lives by ignoring God's blessings, by ignoring God's presence. Even in spite of all that, God loved us. He loves you just the way you are. This is Paul's point In Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God loved us while we were still sinners. Now the good news of the gospel of Christianity isn't that if you climb out of the pit and get your act together, God will love you. The good news is that Jesus Christ climbed down into the pit, died for you so he could carry you in his arms out of the pit. And really, that's what we heard in the baptism stories uh, uh, this morning. God loves you the way you are, but unless you reject God and what he has done for you in Jesus Christ, he will never allow you to stay the way you've been because he will change you because he loves you. Now let's go on, let's go back to our verse. We read God so loved and next, the world. This describes the scope, uh, uh, the breadth of God's love. God loves everyone, God loves every tribe, every continent, every man, every woman, every child. God loves every good person, every bad person. Uh, Just a couple of days ago, a fraternity brother of mine from way back was released from prison. He'd been in prison for 12 years because of financial fraud. And his fraud was so pervasive, his fraud was so bad that it destroyed the company he was running a well-known oil company that no longer exists called Enron. And I've been praying for Jeff recently. And I care for Jeff. And as I've been praying for Jeff, and now that he's finally out of prison, it just struck me how much God cares for Jeff. Even though Jeff destroyed financially the lives of, I don't know, couple hundred people or more. God loves the prisoner. God loves the marginalized. God loved the world. Now let's go on. So that he gave his one and only son. Now we come to the cost or the price of God's love. That God... In his infinite wisdom, sent his son to earth. So fully God, Jesus became fully man. In order that he might die on the cross, in our place for our sins. God, in his love, gave us Jesus. God said, Jesus? And Jesus responded, yes, sir. I'll go, I'm all in, I'll die. Infinite cost. Infinite consequences. And and finally, and here I'm not going to say much right now, the last half of verse 16 refers to the purpose. That is a purpose clause. Uh, That whoever believes... In him will not perish but have eternal life. I'm going to come back to this. Now, here's my point in all of this no one loves you like God. When it comes to the origin and magnitude, the nature and scope, the cost and the purpose, what we've seen just in one verse, nothing compares to the love of God in Jesus Christ. Nothing compares god wants you to know his love god wants you to have ongoing encounters with divine love god has created you to experience his love nothing will save you nothing will fulfill you nothing will make you less anxious or less angry Nothing will make you a better parent, a better employee, a better boss, a better friend than living in light of the wonder of the reality of the fathomlessness, the bottomlessness of God's love. Do you know that love? But let's go on. God is not only love, He is also just. So this is verse 18. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Condemnation is the reflex of God's justice. Because God is holy, he must punish sin. Now let me take this a step further and let's go to the last verse in chapter 3 where we read whoever believes in the son has eternal life but whoever rejects the son will not see life for god's wrath remains on them here we are introduced to the concept of god's wrath so if you have your bibles and you're following in your bibles In verse 16, what we read is that people perish. In verse 18, which we just looked at, we read that people are condemned to eternal punishment. And here in verse 36, we discover the reason for that, because of God's wrath toward sin, human sin. But here's what I want you to see. In this passage, and here I'm talking uh, verses 16, 17, and 18, that the Bible places God's love and God's condemnation right next to each other. Now, this is hard for us to understand because we think love and condemnation are mutually exclusive. Exclusive. I mean, a parent is either loving, right? Or angry and condemning. But Christianity says no. They don't oppose each other. They establish each other in the kingdom of God. So God is not only love or not only wrath, but love and wrath uh, together. His wrath is always loving. His love is always just. Now I I get that this is hard so I want to take a moment and offer two reasons why this is hard for us moderns today. Uh, Why this notion of wrath, condemnation, judgment and eternal punishment uh, goes down uh, difficult And, and the first reason is that we are aware of the brokenness of our own anger the destructive nature of anger around us. And we are so aware of that that we think God can't be like that. And so therefore God can't be angry. God can't be a God of condemnation as we see here. But the problem with that is that our anger is just that. Our anger is a result of our impatience. It's a result of our pride. It's a result of our self-centeredness. I can't believe I just yelled at my three-year-old again. I feel so guilty. I feel like I'm such an awful parent. I can't believe I lost my cool in that meeting when that guy said this. And we're so aware of our anger and we often feel so guilty about it and we experience the tip of the spear of other people's unjust anger. Somebody has said human anger is the emotional response to a blocked goal. And so we have all these goals. I want a peaceful evening, I want the house cleaned up, I want this, I want that, and when that goal is blocked, guess what happens? We get angry, and it's impatience. But God's anger isn't self-centered. God's anger is an expression of his love. Now, did you hear me? God's anger is very different than ours. It's always an expression of his love. It's the anger the parents feel towards the alcohol and the drugs that are consuming their 21-year-old. It's the anger Rhonda and I felt some years back toward cancer when our spouses were dying of cancer. Man, I hate cancer. So there's inappropriate and appropriate anger. But others point out, they take it a step further, and and they say, if you only see God as a God of love who never says no, or on, on the other hand, if you only see God as a God of wrath who never says yes, then you have a distorted view of biblical reality. But worse, that distorts your life. Just as a highly, overly permissive parent or a highly angry, overly angry parent distorts their child's life. Our anger is very different than God's anger because God's anger is always perfect and it's always rooted in love. But there's a second reason that we disdain today in the modern Western world Uh, notions of anger, condemnation, wrath, and eternal judgment. And that is that we disdain absolute truth. You know, if you think about it, to say that uh, God has standards, or uh, to say that uh, God has wrath is simply to say God has standards. Just like a a really good teacher or a really good football coach or baseball coach has standards. C.S. Lewis once said, to live in a universe without standards is like removing uh, the organ but expecting the function. And what he means is it's like removing your heart and expecting the blood to flow. Uh, uh, To not to deny the existence of absolute standards, to deny the existence of God and yet expect people to be honest and and loving makes no sense whatsoever. God isn't mean. God isn't ill-tempered. God's wrath is a settled opposition toward sin. So what John is saying here in these verses is that uh, you can get away with a sin, but you can never get away with the consequences of any sin. Every single sin, every single one of your sins has a consequence. And that consequence must be met. It must be paid. So, let me continue. God is both love, uh, let's put the explore God uh, screen back up here now, because I'm going to move on from, thank you, because I'm going to move on from that verse. So what we've done so far is we've looked at the dual nature of God, okay, God is love, God is just. But that creates a dilemma, a divine dilemma for God. Because on the one hand, because God is love, he doesn't want to forgive sin. But on the other hand, because God is just, he must punish sin. So how can God judge sin and not destroy people? And the answer of Christianity is by the death of Jesus Christ, which satisfied both the demands of a holy God and the demands of a loving God. Now let's go to verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. I want to take a couple minutes here because Jesus is referring to a troubling Old Testament story in Numbers chapter 21. And let me just say before we look at it, I happen to love snakes. I began hunting snakes as a kid. And I'm just fascinated by snakes. And when I was in the Amazon jungle to be able to hold a couple of pythons, they weren't huge. was just like one of the deepest, most spiritual experiences of my life. But I know as soon as I mention this S word, many of you start Quivering. So I would not recommend you read Numbers 21 right before you go to bed tonight, okay? Read it while the light's, while it's still light. So what's happening in Numbers chapter 21 is Israel is in the northern Egypt desert, which is brutally hot, brutally treacherous, and highly dangerous. Actually, not much has changed in the last 3,500 years. And over and over, God has blessed Israel as they are moving slowly from Egypt into the promised land. So God redeemed Israel out of slavery in Egypt. God supernaturally delivered Israel through the Red Sea. God has provided daily food, manna it is called. So Israel will be able to eat as she's wandering because of her unbelief, previous unbelief. But then things take a dramatic turn for the worse. And Israel's unbelief gives way to a deeper unbelief and she starts complaining against God and against Moses. God, what in the world were you thinking when you had us leave Egypt? we would be better off in Egypt than this God-forsaken desert. And Israel's complaining and Israel is defiant. And because God is a God of standards, he's had enough. And even though Israel is God's chosen people, he sends judgment in the form of poisonous snakes into the camp. And these snakes are biting Israelis, and Israelis are dying because of the poison. And all of a sudden, because of the crisis, uh, these Jews come to their senses and they make a beeline to Moses and they admit their sin. Moses, we were way off in complaining against God. We were judging God and now he's judging us. And Moses goes to God and because God is love, God acts to redeem the situation. And God instructs Moses to build a bronze serpent And to put it on a pole and to lift it up so that the moment any Israeli who's been bitten by a poisonous snake looks at that pole, that Israeli will be healed, that Israeli will be saved from death. A wonderful story about both the judgment of God and the love of God. But here, Jesus tells us that really isn't a snake story. That's a Jesus story. Because just as the Jews were writhing in agony because of the poison coursing through their body because of their unbelief, so you and I are just like those Israelis on the desert floor. Because of the cancer, the poison of our our, our sinful hearts, our defiance, our indifference, our our rebellion towards God. Oh, God, I'm going to do it my way. I don't need you. Never mind that I don't know where beauty comes from, but boy, I enjoy it. Uh, Never mind I have no basis for wanting to be loved, uh, but I I sure, sure enjoy it. So just as Moses was lifted up, Jesus was lifted up on the cross and died in our place for our sins so that the moment anyone looks at Jesus, God heals them, takes away the poison, forgives them, makes them righteous in his sight. And so what we have is this story points to Jesus, who is the ultimate redeemer, the ultimate savior, the ultimate lover. And what I want to say to you this morning is, I want you to seek faith-activated encounters of God's love. I want you to be aware that God judges sin, And that the solution Christianity uniquely offers is looking to Jesus and believing in him. Because on the cross, Jesus took the poison of our shame, the poison of our guilt, the poison of our indifference, and the the poison of our unbelief. But there's a fourth part here in these verses And that is, you must believe. So, how can we know God personally? By knowing who God is. God is. He is both love and he is both just. That Christ died on the cross for our sins. And that we must believe. God has given Jesus as a gift, and we must unwrap that gift. Now, let me talk about believe, because we see it twice. In our passage, so I'm going to use the chair, but let's read the passage first. Verse 15, Jesus says that everyone who believes may have eternal life. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only one and only son, that whoever believes, so we have believe and believes. Now, the question is, what does the Bible mean when it talks about believe? Well, let me begin by telling you what it doesn't mean. Research tells us that most Americans believe God exists, that Jesus existed like we believe this chair exists. And most Americans at different points in their lives are Closer to the chair, the existence of God is more meaningful, or at other times, perhaps most times, much further removed from this chair, and they're indifferent to the existence of God, to the existence of Jesus. Now, we call this believing about God, believing about Jesus. And the problem with this is this isn't the kind of belief Jesus and John are talking about. It's not the kind of belief we see in the New Testament, because we're told in the book of James that the demons also believe and shudder. And the demons are on their way to hell. They believe about God, they believe about Jesus. So, what kind of belief are we talking about here? What kind of belief must we exercise? Well, it's not believing the chair exists or even theoretically, conceptually, the chair can hold you up. It's actually sitting in the chair. So when Jesus and John are talking about belief, they're talking about belief in the sense of complete and total dependence. To believe doesn't mean to comprehend. Comprehension is involved. It means to depend upon Jesus. It means to put the full weight. I'll lift my feet up the full weight of your eternal destiny down on Jesus. Not not anything you do or anything you have done, but completely on the fact that Jesus was lifted up on the cross so when you look away from yourself and look to him, he heals you and saves you. This is what the Bible calls faith. It's depending upon Christ to save you and forgive you. So I wonder this morning, do you have a belief about God? A belief about Jesus? Or are you sitting in the chair and depending upon Jesus? God loves you so much, he wants you to know that love, he wants you to experience it. But God is just, and because he has standards, he must punish, he must condemn sin. That is why he sent Jesus. And the invitation of the gospel, the great news of John 3:16, is the moment you and I believe we pass from death into life, from condemnation into forgiveness. I want you to know that. And if you've never done so, I want to invite you to pray with me. As you move from believing about to depending on, so would you bow your heads? And let's pray. Father, we are amazed at what you have done for us in Jesus. And if God has been speaking to you this morning, I want to invite you to come to Jesus and depend upon him by praying just like this Father, thank you that Jesus died for my sin and condemnation. And I want to turn away from my sin and receive Jesus as my Savior. And right now, in the quietness of this moment, I want to turn my life over to you. And Father, for the rest of us that have done this, I pray that we would experience your love. We would live in light of your standards. And we would see the beauty and the majesty of Jesus Christ each and every day of our lives. Oh, God, capture our hearts so our our faith in Christ isn't a head thing. It's not believing about. It's a dependence upon. We want to experience Jesus. Amen.